Well, good morning, Kent City Baptist Church family. My name is Trevor, and it's my honor to be one of the pastors here at this church. The last time I had the privilege of preaching, there was only about five people in a camera, so it's so much better to see all of you here, and much more fun to preach to people instead of trying to imagine your faces. So, I would like to invite you to pray with me before we get started and continue in 1 Corinthians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for each person that you have brought here. Lord, we thank you that we can gather together, that we can sing your praises, that we can celebrate what you have done in the lives of these graduates. Lord, we do ask for your guidance for them in these days ahead. And now, Father, we ask for your spirit to please help us. Please help us understand your word. Help us to see clearly as you would have us see, and I pray that you would help us to apply the truths of your word to our lives in a way that is honoring and pleasing to you. Please keep me from saying anything that does not come from you or is unhelpful. May Jesus be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, as a culture, we are largely obsessed with identity. It's the subject of numerous books and articles. It makes its way into many movies and films. Hardly any of us could count how many movies have talked about someone going away and finding themselves and being true to themselves. It's also the subject of many fun films, like the movie based on the novel of Jason Bourne. This man who's found wounded adrift at sea with complete amnesia as to what his identity is. He realizes that he possesses a certain unique set of skills and is basically in a race to try to figure out who he is as he's being hunted down by a black ops organization. Or in the play of Les Miserables with Jean Valjean and this neat redemption story. Jean Valjean sings a song entitled, Who Am I? And he sings concerning God. He says that the Lord gave him hope when hope was gone and gave him strength to carry on. And then he belts out, Who am I? I'm Jean Valjean. Who am I? 24601, which was his prisoner identification number as he wrestles with the consequences for his actions and what that means for his future. And this morning, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and Paul's going to instruct the church as to what is their identity. He's going to tell them from where they need to find wisdom and knowledge and authority. And then finally, he's going to emphasize for them what is the rich inheritance that they have. And I have good news and bad news for you all this morning. The good news is this. We have much in common with the church in Corinth. That's also the bad news. We have some things in common with the church in Corinth. And if you know the letter of 1 Corinthians, that's not always a good thing. So at this time, I'd like to invite you to please stand with me and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 16 to 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 to 23. Do you not know 
that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now this morning we're going to see in these short few verses a pattern from Paul emerge. And this is a pattern that is present throughout really this entire letter. But we're going to see it a couple times just in these verses. And Paul's pattern is this. Paul points to a Christological truth to resolve the ethical dilemmas of the church. Or to state that a different way, Paul points to who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished to answer the daily life struggles of the church in Corinth. And we're going to see that pattern emerge over and over. The first time is in regards to identity. Paul begins with this negative question in verse 16. He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple? And the reason Paul has to ask that question is because the answer is, Nope. They do not. That much is clear by the way they are living and by the way they are acting. Or if they do know, they are not acting on what they do know. Paul continues that God's Spirit dwells in you or in your midst. And this is the key marker of what makes the church in Corinth God's temple. It's the presence of God's Spirit amongst His people. And in the Old Testament, it was bound to where the Ark of the Covenant was and the geographical location of the temple. But now, under the new covenant in Christ, the, the law of God is written by the Spirit on the hearts of men and women. And so, Paul is able to write to the church in Corinth and tell them the Christological truth is that you are God's temple because of what Christ has done for you as our great high priest. He has removed the veil that separated us from God because of our sin in making us acceptable in God's sight. And now, church in Corinth, God's Spirit dwells in you. That's the truth of this pattern. Then he continues in verse 17 with this idea of, te of temple destruction. 
And he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Now, temples were very common in the city of Corinth. Corinth was a city right near the sea. It was a a big harbor and port. And so, Gentile Corinthian Christians would have daily seen temples to pagan deities. They would have seen people worshiping Poseidon or Persephone. This here is an image of some of the remains of the temple of Apollos. Please don't confuse that with Apollos, whom Paul has mentioned several times in this letter, who is a church leader in Corinth. They would have been very familiar with temples. But for Jewish Corinthian Christians, they would have had a different temple in their mind's eye. And it would have looked much more like Solomon's temple. And what's fascinating is if you recall, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Chris preached on these first few verses of chapter 3, where Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, and God has given the growth. And then he says to them in verse 9, you are God's field. Then last week, Pastor Jared, as we can still see some of the remnants, Pastor Jared preached on the one foundation that is Christ. And what needs to be built upon that needs to be things of gold, of precious stones, so that they endure. And what's so interesting is, if you recall in the Old Testament, Solomon's temple was adorned with carvings of garden imagery, of images of basically Eden on the walls. And they were overlaid with, you guessed it, gold and precious stone. And so here, in the end of this, we see the culmination of this temple imagery for Paul. And he warns the believers there against destroying God's temple. That seems like abnormal language or odd language to destroy God's temple, right? So how does one destroy God's temple? Well, the church in Corinth came about it pretty naturally. It came from their quarreling, from their divisions, from their factions, from using human wisdom as a point of separating believers. And Paul's response is a dire warning for them to say, anyone who destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. And again, that seems like odd language to describe what God is going to do. We don't usually think of God destroying people in this regard. But what does that look like? Well, Paul gives us a hint in one commentator, Gordon Fee, I believe very persuasively demonstrates that this destruction of someone, we actually see an example right here in the letter of 1 Corinthians. In chapter 5, Paul addresses this incredibly terrible act of sexual immorality that has taken place in the church. It's so grotesque that even pagans don't do these things, Paul says. And in chapter 5, in verse 5, Paul tells the church there that the next time they assemble in the presence of the Lord and when Paul's spirit is present among them, he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And this passage is one of our models for what church discipline looks like. So what does it look like to be destroyed by God for destroying his temple? It looks like being cut off from the people of God. It looks like being handed over to Satan 
to be destroyed with the hopes that reconciliation will take place and that their soul will be saved in the day of the Lord. Then, in the end of verse 17, Paul gets into what are the implications of the Christological truth that the church in Corinth is God's temple. And it is this. For God's temple is holy, and you all are that temple. They need to live like they are God's temple. And they need to become and be becoming by the power of the Spirit that which God has made them by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. This here is an image of the Ark of the Covenant. And you see two wings of cherubim spread over the Ark, guarding the holiness of God, which was in the Holy of Holies in the physical temple. And Paul's exhortation to the church is to be holy because God is holy. In the next verses, he's going to turn his attention to what is wisdom and what is the source of knowledge and authority in our lives. In verse 18, he begins with another negative and he says, let no one deceive himself. Do you know why Paul has to say that? Because they are being deceived. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. See, apparently what was happening in the church in Corinth is that they were appealing to wisdom of the world, to secret knowledge or wisdom that only a few people had, and using that as a source to separate us from the rest of people. Being better having more knowledge than someone else. And Paul's answer to that is to entirely flip everything they know on its head. And he says, if anyone thinks he is wise in this world, let him become a fool. Meaning, let him become a fool in the eyes of the world. Let them live in such a way that makes no sense to the watching world so that they may become wise. Wise in the way in which God would have us be wise, in the wisdom and knowledge that comes from God. What is the Christological truth here? It is that Jesus is the wisdom of God. He is the Word of God. And if we want to know what the Father is like, we have only to look to Christ to see what He is like. The Gospel of John tells us over and over again, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. His will is to do the will of him who sent me, the Father, he says. His desire is that the church in Corinth would see that the wisdom of this age is not the way that God sees the world or the way that God operates. And in fact, we see this most clearly in the cross of Christ we see in the cross of Christ the pinnacle of folly before the world's eyes. How do you defeat death? By letting yourself be murdered. God's redemption plan makes absolutely no sense before the eyes of the world. Verse 19, For the wisdom of the world is folly with God, or folly in the sight of God. 
Then Paul goes on to cite two Old Testament passages which give a summary of how Paul wants the church in Corinth to see wisdom. The first one is in verse 19, is actually a quotation from Job chapter 5, verse 13. And if you'll recall the book of Job, Job is a very prosperous and richly blessed man who loses everything in the beginning chapters of Job. And then three, fr- three of his friends come to comfort him and to speak into his life. Sounds pretty good, right? Well, unfortunately, Job's friends have no category for understanding how someone who is a faithful follower of God can experience such suffering and such devastation in their lives. And so this quotation that Paul uses is actually from one of Job's friends named Eliphaz the Temnite. And he rather unhelpfully is saying things to Job, but here Paul uses what he says to summarize wisdom as God sees it in the world. Paul cites, He, the Lord, catches the wise in their craftiness. So worldly wisdom in all of its craftiness is easily ensnared by the Lord. And its best attempts to be covert and crafty, they are ensnared before the Lord. This highlighting the fallibility of human wisdom, the easy ability to err or be mistaken of worldly wisdom. Then he cites another Old Testament passage, this time from Psalm 94 verse 11 in verse 20. And he says, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So here we see this elite wisdom of the world and it's incredibly known and laid bare before God. None of it is even remotely a surprise to him. And what's worse is the elite wisdom of the world is not only entirely known by God, but it is judged by God and recognized by him to be futile. Then, Paul turns his attention, thirdly, to the inheritance of the church in Corinth. And you see, the church in Corinth was vastly selling themselves short of the glorious inheritance they had in Christ. In a similar way, when my wife and I were dating, one Christmas I purchased tickets for her and I to go and see the Broadway musical The Phantom of the Opera. And so I got up early and bought student-discounted tickets, and I knew that there was a novel that the play was based on, also called The Phantom of the Opera, and so I bought, I went to Barnes & Noble or Borders and bought a $9.99 paperback copy of The Phantom of the Opera, and I put the tickets inside the book, and I wrapped it up and gave it to my wife as a Christmas present. And bless her heart, when I gave her the book, she opened it and She was so grateful for the book. She turned it over. She looked at the cover. She looked at the back and was like, wow, thank you so much. I've always wanted to read this and, and, you know, see the novel the play is based off of. And so I I waited a couple moments, you know, any any minute now. She's got to open it up, right, that front cover. And she did open some of the pages, but not the front cover where the two tickets are. Finally, I had to give her a little nudge in the right direction. I was like, there's something else in there. You should look for it. And she saw the two tickets and said, what are these? And I said, these are tickets for us tonight to go and see the play. Again, bless her heart for her gratefulness. Um, 
But just in that similar way, the church in Corinth had so much more that was given to them that is their rich inheritance in Christ than what they actually realized. And so Paul demonstrates that here beginning in verse 21. He says, let no one boast in men. Why does Paul have to say that? Well, yeah, you guessed it. Because that's exactly what they have been doing. See, apparently it was quite common in Corinth for someone to say, I am a follower of Poseidon. I am a follower of Persephone. And then the church in Corinth also became very entrenched in saying, I'm a follower of Paul. I'm a follower of Peter. I'm a follower of Apollos. But as I mentioned, Paul is going to turn everything right on its head. He continues in verse 21, All things are yours. Because the church is in Christ, that's the Christological truth here, the ramifications are that all things are yours. And then he has these three sets. The first set concerns leaders. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas. See, they had been labeling themselves as followers of Paul or Apollos or Cephas and misunderstood that Paul and Apollos and Cephas are servants of the church, which is what they are. And it's not that the church belongs to these people, but that these men who God has equipped belong to the church for the service and care of the body and bride of Jesus. Then he turns to the next one, the powers of the universe, and he lists whether the world or life or death. These are their inheritance because they are in Christ. The world, which was a source of great fear to, to them, now is being reigned over by King Jesus, who's reigning from the right hand of the Father. And we eagerly await the consummation of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. No longer do they need to fear or be captive to life or death. Because Jesus has passed through death in his resurrection and has brought us to new life in him. These are yours, says Paul. And then finally, time itself, which God has created both the present or the future, all are yours. We need not fear what tomorrow holds if we belong to Christ. Because the future and the present is in his hands. And we can trust that God will strengthen us and sustain us to do what he has asked us to do each and every day. And that the Lord knows the hairs on our head, the days that we have are numbered, and we entrust those into God's care. And in the future, we wait eagerly to spend eternity in the presence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All are yours, says Paul. And you are Christ's, or you belong to Christ. Not to these people, not to these powers, not to time. You belong to Christ, and Christ is God's, or Christ belongs to God.
This is the truth for those who are in Christ. And it is a glorious inheritance. And it is to the detriment of the church in Corinth that they sell themselves so far short of these things that are theirs in Christ Jesus. His message to the church in Corinth is this. Church in Corinth, you all are God's temple. That is the truth. The ramifications are live like it. Don't let these divisions get the best of you. Don't have schisms and factions. Don't separate yourselves based on leaders. Don't buy into human wisdom. Don't boast in men but bask in the glorious inheritance that you have in Christ. At this time, I want to briefly address the graduates. Based upon this passage, I know some of you have probably have teachers or parents who are reading you stories like Dr. Seuss's, Oh, the places you will go. And we are legitimately excited for you and for your future and for the potential that is there. And I prayed a lot over this, and my prayer has been that this would not be snarky and unhelpful. But following Paul's example of a number of negative examples, I humbly offer you graduates four simple steps to ruining your lives based on this passage. And one word of caution before I list these four simple steps these, if these are patterns of behavior in your life, I truly believe you should be deeply concerned. If one or two of these things can describe how you may have had an occasional day, I'm not necessarily saying that that is true of you all the time, or that that's always the case. But if these are patterns in your life, you should be deeply concerned. So graduates of 2020, or those who have graduated at some point in the past, or hope or aspire to graduate at some point in the future, I give you four simple steps to ruin your life. Number one, very passively, very simply, let the world define you. Let the world tell you what your identity is. Trust your feelings. Be true to yourself. Let the world tell you who is accepted and who is in and who's out. Let the world tell you what your values should be. Let the world be the one who tells you that your significance depends upon the job that you get or the school to which you are accepted or the amount of income that you receive. If you can very passively do this first step, you are well on your way to ruining your life. Number two, and perhaps most importantly, don't work or labor to study and know God's Word. Again, very passively, don't take the time to learn about the different genres of Scripture or the overall story of redemption that God has in Genesis to Revelation. If you can avoid doing this, it will make step one so much easier for you because you won't have anyone else to speak into how you're defining yourself or your values. If you can do this simple step, you are hurtling down the path to ruining your life. 
Number three, again, very simply, very passively. It's almost alarming how easy these are, isn't it? Don't serve the church. Don't love and give yourself to the body and bride of Christ. And the reason this step is so important is what it will do is it will allow you to navel gaze perpetually and never have another point of perspective to see what is happening in the lives of those around you. You don't have to worry about anyone hurting you or betraying you because you're not going to entrust yourself to anyone. Again, very simply, just passively let it go by and don't get involved in serving the body and bride of Christ. And finally, number four, based off this passage, very simply, utterly and completely, in as much as you are able, enslave yourself to all the things from which Christ has already freed you. If you can enslave yourself to a different leader, or if you can completely enslave yourself to the wisdom of the world, then you can be entirely divided from those around you and you can easily be ensnared in fear of the world that it might get you, of life and death. It can be a completely paralyzing and all-controlling fear for you. And you can have incredible anxiety about today and tomorrow and what it holds. And you can easily only trust in your own ability and in pulling up your own bootstraps if you can entirely enslave yourself to these things from which Christ has freed you. Now again, this is not a comprehensive list, but I think it's a really good start if you want to ruin your life. And so, the converse of this is Church of Kent City Baptist. Temple of God in Kent City. What would we look like? How much different would we look if we defined ourselves based on who God says we are. And if we recognize that the source of wisdom and knowledge and authority in our lives is what God says, not the fleeting and ever-changing values of the world around us. And what would it look like if we were completely aware and delighted and basked in the glorious inheritance that we have in Christ that all things are ours in Christ Jesus. Ultimately, the one thing I want you to walk away from this message with is this. Be who God says you are. We are the temple of God. So love the body and bride of Christ. I know it's hard. It's messy. I know it but love it. And by the Spirit's power in your life, become holy as God is holy. And may we not let divisions tear us asunder or separate us. And may we not be divided by these many different things. And may boasting have no place in our midst. By the power of the Spirit, be who God says you are. Define your life by what God says you are and live accordingly to the praise and glory of Jesus' name.